Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go with me to that passage uh, that we just read, Genesis chapter 1. It should be pretty easy to find. Just open your Bible to like the first page or two and you should be good. Genesis chapter 1 is where we'll be here in just a bit. Uh, if you were with us last Sunday, uh, you will know that we kicked off a new series uh, that day called Intentional. And it's a series about how we as followers of Jesus think about our gender and, and the idea of gender. So uh, if you weren't here last week, and this is the first time you're finding out that we're doing a series on that, surprise, uh, or sorry, or you're welcome. I don't really know what to say to you, but that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, so more importantly, uh, if that's you, uh, allow me to briefly recap where we were last week, just so you kind of understand the foundation that we're building on for today. So last Sunday, we really spent very little time talking about gender itself, and we spent a lot of time just talking about God and the idea of God. Specifically, we asked and answered the question, can we trust what God has to say about life in general, but also about gender and the idea of gender specifically. And, and this probably comes as no surprise to you since this is, after all, a church, but we concluded that we can indeed trust uh, what God says about life and specifically about gender. And we said that we can trust him and we can trust that for at least three reasons, because God created us, because he's smarter than us, and because he is for us, because he's unwaveringly committed to our good. We said that those were pre three pretty solid reasons to at least consider what God has to say on this topic. But with that established last week, uh, today I just want to dive straight in, if that's okay with y'all. Uh, last week was about whether or not to hear what God has to say about gender. This week is going to be what God has to say about gender. And with that said, I, I do want to just warn you before we get started, uh, this week is going to be at least somewhat dense, and I just don't know of another way around it. I, I tried to make it not dense, and it didn't work, so it's just going to be dense. Uh, I have to lay out a lot of really foundational ideas about what we're going to cover that we can then build on and make it really practical over the coming weeks of this Series, But today I just need to unpack some big foundational ideas from the scriptures. But I've got faith that we can get through it together. Does that sound good for y'all? I'm just, I came here expecting that y'all are ready to think this morning. Are you ready to think? I was really hoping for that answer because I had nothing else planned. If you said no, so that's very reassuring for me. Um, so here's how we're going to go about it this morning. I'll give you kind of a roadmap for where we're headed. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, that passage we just read, those three verses specifically, those verses are about as foundational of a text as there is in the Bible about humanity. Uh, it's the first moment that human beings make an appearance in the story, and because of that, I think there is a lot we can draw from in those verses about how we understand ourselves and our identity and even our gender. 
And, and what we see in that passage is that the idea of gender is actually right at the center of what is being said in those verses. But that said, I'm, I'm going to read through that passage one more time in its entirety just so we can see it and savor it for what it is. And then I want to draw out at least two very simple conclusions from that passage for our time together. We'll spend the rest of our time sort of dissecting those. Make sense? Okay. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 26 and go through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There's our passage. Here are the conclusions that I think we can draw from that passage. The conclusions themselves probably aren't going to sound super groundbreaking to many of us but they are absolutely essential to understanding the biblical teaching about gender. Plus, I think they give us some lenses for understanding where the society around us sometimes goes awry in their understanding of gender. And I'll try to show you all of that as we go along together. First conclusion from our passage. I think Genesis chapter one teaches that men and women are equal. Men and women are equal. Maybe put more specifically, men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value before God. So in verse 26, it says that God created mankind, i.e. man and woman, in his image. And just in case that was ambiguous to anybody, it gets reiterated and spelled out even more clearly in verse 27. There, it says, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So it would seem that this idea is fairly important to the author of Genesis. Men and women are both made in the image of God equally. It doesn't say that just men are made in the image of God. It doesn't say that men are created in the image of God and then to a lesser extent, women are. It says that male and female are both created in God's image which tells us they are of equal importance to God and should be seen as having equal importance by anyone who claims to know God. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a very radical statement to many of us living in 21st century America, if I had to guess. But you should know that it is a pretty radical statement and has been a pretty radical statement to pretty much every other society in existence down throughout human history. It absolutely was a radical statement to the original readers of the book of Genesis. You see, other creation accounts written around the same time as Genesis rarely even mention women, much less state that they are co-image bearers of the divine. If women get mentioned in other creation accounts, they generally are seen as very inferior to men. They mainly exist to bear men's children and extend the family line. But the author of Genesis is making a point to say that women are not second-class citizens, baby-making machines, or afterthoughts. They are equal image bearers of God. 
That's important. Men and women are created equal. We also see equality laid out in the instructions given to men and women in verse 28 specifically. It says there that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So I want you to notice the use of the word them in that verse. Who does God bless? Them, Adam and Eve. Who does God tell to be fruitful and increase in number? Them. Who does he tell to fill the earth and subdue it? Them. Who does he tell to rule over the rest of creation? Them. Adam and Eve, they are set up in the story as co-rulers over creation, co-image bearers of God. I think we also see equality laid out in Genesis chapter 2, where the story actually zooms in a little bit on the creation of Adam and Eve. We're told there in chapter 2 that God creates Adam, and he gives Adam the task of working the garden and taking care of it. But then he says, it's, quote, not good for Adam to be alone. Adam needs help. The task that he's been given in the garden is too great for him to complete on his own. So there's this really peculiar passage that takes place where where God brings a series of animals in front of Adam as potential partners in the task there in the garden. Adam names and and subsequently dismisses each one of those animals. None of them are fit co-laborers for Adam. But then God creates Eve, he brings her to Adam, and Adam says this about Eve. We'll put it up on the screen. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So do you hear what Adam is saying there in the story? He's saying essentially, this one is like me. This one is like me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In other words, the similarity between him and the woman is what prompts him to realize that they were meant to be together, that they were meant to work together. The fact that they are on the same level, the same plane as each other. So Eve is not like the animals, she's like Adam. Which Adam takes to mean that they were meant to be with one another and partner with each other alongside one another precisely because of their similarity. They are equal image bearers of God. And there's likely at least one more reason in Genesis for concluding that men and women are created equal. It's actually back in verse 26. Look back there with me on the screen. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And the passage goes on from there. But do you hear how God refers to himself in that verse? It's plural. He says, let us, our image, our likeness. He's speaking in the first person plural. So who is the us that God is referring to there? That's our question. The most plausible explanation for it is that this is the first reference in the Bible to what we now call the Trinity, The idea that God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is something about man and woman then that is representative of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity is is different from the other and yet is equal in their divine identity. So follow me on this. Wouldn't it make sense then for God to create multiple types of humans who are different from one another and yet equal in being image bearers of God. To me, that would make a lot of sense. 
That would be a really good way of imaging the triune God. That would be very similar to the dynamic within the Trinity. Not exactly the same, but very similar. So from a variety of different angles, for multiple different reasons in the text, I think this passage teaches us that men and women are created equal by God. That's the first conclusion I wanted you to see. Here's the second one, which I've actually already alluded to briefly. Second conclusion from the passage is that men and women are distinct. Men and women are distinct. So although men and women are seen as equal in the biblical storyline, there's something very important for us to realize about that equality. This is really important. Being equal is not the same thing as being identical. Being equal is not the same thing as being identical, or for that matter, interchangeable. Two things can be equal in value to one another and worth to one another, while also being different and distinct from each other. Uh, Let me illustrate this with something completely unrelated to men and women, just so we can see how the concept works. Uh, Let's say you roll up to the local Target this afternoon, as one does. I think I mentioned Target last week. Sorry for all the Target, you guys, but let's be real. It's a part of all of our lives at this point, right? So let's say you roll up to the local Target this afternoon, and they have a table where they've got some classic pocket T-shirts for sale. I love a good pocket tee, as evidenced by my entire wardrobe, right? Um, (laughs) Love a good pocket tee. They've got pocket tees for sale at Target, and there's a sign on the table that says, all pocket tees, $9.99. And since they've been on sale, there's only two shirts left on the table. There's a blue one and a yellow one. Question for you, are those two shirts equal in value? Sure are. Now, you might say you personally like one of them better than the other, but that's subjective value. I'm talking about objective value. Are they both objectively equal in value? Yeah. You take, if you take both shirts up to the register, they're both going to be rung up at precisely $9.99 plus the astronomical Tennessee sales tax, right? They're both going to be rung up at the same price. But does that mean that those two shirts are identical? No, not unless you're colorblind, right? The, those two shirts are very different shirts. Yellow is a very different color from blue. If you sent your friend to Target and told them to come back with a blue t-shirt for you and they came back with a yellow one, you would be very concerned for your friend, right? (laughs) Because they're not identical. They don't look the same. Now, they're similar in a whole lot of ways, including their value and worth, but they're also different. They're also distinct. A yellow shirt is not identical to or interchangeable with a blue shirt. So things being equal apparently do not require that they be identical to each other. So I would insist then, based on that principle, that we can simultaneously affirm that men and women are equal in value and worth while also affirming that they are distinct and different from each other. Despite what you may have heard, those are not contradictory ideas from one another. Now here's what's fascinating to me about this when it comes to men and women, scientifically, Quite a few studies have now shown that the more equality there is between men and women in a particular society, the more measurable distinction we begin to see between men and women in that society. 
One reporter called this phenomenon, quote, one of the best established findings in psychology, even if no one can properly explain it. But I think we can explain it. It's because God created men and women to be both equal and also distinct from one another. Those two things are not opposed to the other. But I also want you to see all this in our passage in Genesis. You see, if God just wanted there to be two human beings in the story, because two human beings are needed to complete the task that God gave them, well, then he could have created two men or two women, two identical humans, right? If all it was was them needing help, them needing two people to complete the task, he could have done that, but God doesn't do that. God could have created two androgynous human beings that have more arbitrary differences just for variety's sake, right? He could have created one with green eyes and one with brown eyes, one with blonde hair, one with red hair. But he didn't do that either. God creates one human who is anatomically and biologically male and another human who is anatomically and biologically female. So why is that distinction the one that gets the airtime in the story? Why is that the one that gets pointed out? I think one reason is readily apparent from the passage itself. God tells the man and the woman in Genesis chapter 1 to, quote, be fruitful and increase in number. Now, I don't mean to be crude here, but there's pretty much only one way that that can happen, and it requires a biological male and a biological female for it to happen. Is everybody with me? If you're not with me, I don't know that now is the time to explain it to you or that I'm the person to explain it to you, but hopefully someone will at some point. I have confidence in that. Hopefully most of us are tracking there. So, so that's one vitally important distinction between men and women, and one reason that sexual difference is actually essential, not just to God, but to the human race and its survival. But I'll say also, even from a literary perspective in the passage itself, if you know the story of Genesis 1 up until this point, you know that up until now, God has been creating pretty much everything essentially in corresponding pairs to one another. He creates the heavens, he creates the earth, he creates the day, he creates the night, he creates the sea, and he creates the land. So God creates the entire world in these mutually corresponding pairs. Now, not identical pairs, mind you, but equally important pairs that are intentionally different from one another. So then when we come to the apex of God's creation, human beings, we read that he once again creates a corresponding pair. He creates a man and he creates a woman. So these two categories, male and female, they aren't arbitrary, nor are they just one of many ways of categorizing human beings. They are important categories that are meant to correspond to and complete each other. Put slightly differently, we need both men and women to show the world what God is like. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, to show the world what God is like. Remember, it said male and female, God created them. So evidently, men alone cannot fully communicate to the world what God is like. Neither can women alone. For the world to truly comprehend and see what God is like, we need both men and women as image bearers. 
In fact, this might come as a surprise to some of us, but throughout the Bible, masculine and feminine imagery is used to describe God. Now, to be sure, God is always referred to as a he, but even when communicating what he is like, the Bible constantly draws on both masculine and feminine metaphor. So I'll give you some examples. God is called a husband to Israel. He's a father to Jesus. He is described repeatedly in the Old Testament as both a king and a warrior, both clearly masculine metaphors in the day and age in which they were used. God comes to earth as Jesus, who is a Jewish male. But at the same time, God is not afraid to use feminine language to describe what he is like, and particularly to describe his heart for his people. In Isaiah chapter 42, he comforts Israel like a mother comforts her child. In Isaiah 49, it says he can no more forget Israel than a nursing mother can forget the child that she's feeding. In the Gospels, Jesus says that he longs to gather God's people together like a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself. And just in case you thought all the feminine imagery in the Bible was loving, gentle, nurturing imagery, there's also Hosea chapter 13, where God says he will act as fiercely as a mother bear robbed of her cubs. Have you ever seen how a mama bear responds when you threaten her cubs? There's YouTube videos of it. It's pretty intense. And I could give you even more examples where those came from. But my question for you is this. Why would the scriptures feel the need to use both masculine and feminine imagery to describe the heart of God for his people? Might it be that both men and women are made in God's image? And that we need both men and women to show the world properly what God is like? It sure does sound like a plausible reason to me. You see, if all we have is a world full of men, we miss out on key aspects of what God is like. If all we have is a world full of women, we also miss out on key aspects of what God is like. We need both. And... Notice this, if we erase and collapse all the distinctions between men and women, if we pretend as if men and women are identical or interchangeable, that means we also miss out on key aspects of what God is like. The distinctions between men and women are not just essential from a biological perspective, they're also beautiful and helpful from a theological perspective, in order to most clearly see what the God of the universe is like and his heart for people. So, in Genesis chapter 1, we see that men and women are both equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in worth before God, and we see that men and women are different and distinct from one another. Now, With both of those ideas unpacked, I will be the first to admit in the room that these two ideas can be difficult to hold in tension with one another. We often have a really hard time figuring out how to appreciate both the equality and the distinction between men and women at the same time, to the point that sometimes, even often, instead of holding these two ideas together side by side, we've often formed entire political camps and teams, especially in the church, based on emphasizing one of these ideas over the other. In the church, we've even given formal names to these two teams. 
So if you've been around the church long, you may have heard these terms. If not, they're pretty easy to learn. One camp refers to themselves as egalitarian. Egalitarian. Egalitarian comes from the Latin word meaning equal. Egalitarians tend to emphasize the equality between men and women. The other camp calls themselves complementarians. That word emphasizes the idea that men and women complement with an E each other. Hopefully they complement with an I each other too, but they, they complement one another. They complete one another. In other words, they differ from one another. Men and women differ. Complementarians tend to focus mainly on the differences between men and women. Now, these two teams often present their positions as two very different ways of understanding the relationship between men and women. Sometimes they do that nicely, and sometimes they do it quite passive-aggressively. Sometimes they do it aggressive-aggressively. Uh, there's an entire realm of Christian publishing that is just these two camps writing books and blog posts at each other, arguing for their respective positions. But all my cards on the table this morning, uh, I personally find the names of these two particular camps a little disorienting and a little unhelpful. And here's why. I think these two camps are often, not always, but often guilty of splitting apart two beliefs that I think God meant to be held together. I think they split apart two beliefs that God meant to be held together. So egalitarians want to make sure that we know men and women are equal. Complementarians want to make sure that we know that men and women are distinct. But think back to our passage earlier. Which one of those is true from the Bible's perspective? Are men and women equal or are they distinct? Yes. So you see the problem. To me, being asked if I am a complementarian or an egalitarian is like someone asking me if I am a Tennessee football fan or a Tennessee baseball fan. You have to pick one. Do I, though? Do I have to pick one? I mean, it's not like they play each other. Like, I feel like I could like both teams. No, nope, you got to pick just one. Can't like both. It's like, I, I just don't think that I do. I don't think I have to pick one of those teams. That's kind of how I feel about picking the label egalitarian, complementarian. I, I feel like I'm being forced to pick between two things that God cares about, and I refuse to do that. But there's also a functional reason that I find those labels unhelpful at times. Often, when you separate people into teams, uh, both teams start focusing way more on distinguishing themselves from the other team than they do aligning their team with the Bible. I think that's actually the core of the problem. All of a sudden, contrast with the other team becomes the goal instead of biblical accuracy and compassion becoming the goal. And eventually, I think what starts to happen when you have these two teams so clearly defined is that people start moving towards the extreme edges of each team just because they want to distinguish themselves from the other side. And indeed, this is often what happens with egalitarians and complementarians. People who are passionate about equality feel like they have to overstate their position just to make sure it gets heard. So in order to make sure that men and women are seen as equal, they end up communicating on purpose or by accident that men and women are actually identical or interchangeable. And on the extreme end, people on this camp 
will end up saying that the idea of gender is actually entirely socially constructed. That in reality, there are no actual distinctions between men and women, just the ones that we made up over the years. But here's the thing, the other side does this too. Sometimes people who are more complementarian in their theology, they get so alarmed by the people out there in the world who they think are trying to erase gender distinctions that they start overstating the distinctions for effect. They write books, for instance, about how men are from Mars and women are from Venus. That's how different we are. We're actually from different planets altogether. And that seems harmless until you realize that it actually impacts the way that men treat women and the way women treat men. We end up feeling like it's hopeless to find anything in common with the other gender. We just have to learn how to cope with our differences, which, if we're honest, usually looks like rolling our eyes at the other gender and getting exasperated at how much of an alien they are to us. But I want you to see this morning God didn't ever intend for us to have to choose whether we think men and women are equal or whether we think men and women are distinct. Both can be true. In fact, both are true according to the Bible. But as always, what God intended to be held together, Satan loves to tear apart. And he often uses our sin to do that. So we end up with a world where many are trying to take men and women and make them identical in the hopes of showing that they're equal, and a world where many are trying to insist that men and women are complete opposites just to communicate that they're distinct from each other. So listen, because of all of this, this means that you're not crazy if you are looking at parts of our society right now and thinking to yourself, Man, it feels like we need more equality between men and women here. It, it feels like here men and women are not being treated as if they are equal in worth and value, and that needs to change for the sake of our society. I would argue there are quite a few places in our society where that is a completely accurate assessment of the situation. It is not wrong for a follower of Jesus to push for more equality between men and women as long as when you say men and women are equal, you don't mean they should be identical and interchangeable. And you are not crazy if you're looking at parts of our society right now and thinking to yourself, it sure does feel like we could use more meaningful distinction between men and women here. It seems like we're trying to erase the beautiful difference between the genders, and I don't think we have to do that. You're not crazy if you're thinking that, because I would argue there are many places in our society where that is completely an accurate assessment of the situation. So it isn't wrong for followers of Jesus to push for appreciating the differences, the beautiful distinctions between men and women, as long as when you say men and women are different, you don't mean one is better and more important than the other. But I'll also say this, if you are looking around our world and you only ever see one of those things as the problem and not the other, I would argue you may not be looking close enough. You may be overlooking at least half of the problem, as it were. You may be looking through the lenses of your particular team or camp 
instead of through the lenses of the scriptures. And more importantly, you may be neglecting a significant piece of the heart of God for people. If God intended both men and women to be both equal and distinct, it would follow that the enemy would want to distort that understanding on both ends of the spectrum, not just one or the other. Chances are there are ways that our world needs more equality and there are ways that our world needs more distinction. It's so important that we learn how to hold those two ideas in tension with one another. But all of that said, before we're done today, I want to give you one last conclusion from the pages of Scripture about men and women. And this one to me, believe it or not, is even more important than the two we just mentioned already. Here's the third conclusion. There is something more important than equality and distinction. There's something more important than equality and distinction. As important as equality and distinction are, neither of them are of ultimate importance in the Bible. They both matter deeply, and because they matter to God, they should matter to us as his people as well, but neither of them are ultimate. They are not the ultimate aim of following Jesus. The ultimate aim of following Jesus for men and women is Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. In the Bible, we are not primarily encouraged to be formed more into a certain defined image of our gender. We are primarily encouraged to all be formed into the image of Jesus. I'll give you a few examples, just so you know I'm not lying. From the Bible, four different examples. Romans 8, verse 29. We'll put these on the screen. For those, who, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Jesus, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image, that's Jesus' image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Ephesians 4, verse 24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, these passages were all written to New Testament men and women. And in all of them, and really in the entire New Testament, the ultimate aim seems to be growing in Christ-likeness. If masculinity or femininity are there, if they're present, which sometimes they are, they are at best secondary in importance. What is primary is being made and remade in the image of God and demonstrating to the world through that what God is like. So listen, whatever your personal definition of masculinity or femininity is, I would hope that it has not become more important to you than Christ-likeness. I would hope that's not the case. I would hope that as a follower of Jesus, you are at least more focused on helping men and women around you become more like Jesus than you are focused on helping them become more masculine or more feminine. Now, is being formed into the image of Jesus going to look a little bit different for a man than it does for a woman? I would imagine so, right? Because men and women are created distinct from one another. 
It'll probably look different in a lot of ways. It'll probably look similar in a lot of ways. But the ultimate goal for all of us is Christ-likeness. If for no other reason than the more we are all formed into the image of Jesus, the more accurately we will reflect what he thinks about men and women, about equality and distinction at the same time. If those two things are embedded within the heart of God for his people, they will become more and more a part of our heart as we are formed into God's image. Does that make sense? So for the next two weeks, we are going to talk about how we view ourselves as men and women in God's family. We're going to dig into some specifics about about masculinity and and some specifics about femininity. The two weeks after that in the series, we are going to talk about how we approach our relationships with each other as men and women, both friendship and marriage. But today, I just want us to end thinking about Christ-likeness. Because listen, no amount of increased masculinity in a person can make up for a lack of Christ-likeness. No amount of increased femininity can make up for a lack of Christ-likeness. Whether it's how we view ourselves individually or how we view each other as men and women, it all has to start here for followers of Jesus. Am I becoming more like Jesus? So in a moment, all of us who are followers of Jesus are going to approach the tables to take communion. And as we do that, this is what we're saying. We're asking Jesus, by the relationship made possible through the cross, by the power of his spirit dwelling within us, we are asking Jesus to make us more like him. All of us. As we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we're remembering that this whole thing, all of this, is ultimately about him. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ-likeness. It's about us becoming more like him. It's not ultimately about gender or masculinity or femininity. Those things are important. They're very important. But they're also secondary in the kingdom of Jesus. It is primarily about knowing and becoming more like Jesus. Jesus is most important, and all of this is about him. Everything else at best is secondary. Let me pray for us, and we'll go to the table.